And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. There are a few things that are more inspiring than a great success story, especially an unlikely success story. Those accounts of people and movements that to everyone's surprise rise from great obscurity to the pinnacle of fame and influence. Think for a moment about the life of the late Steve Jobs. The former CEO of the Apple Corporation started that company with only two men laboring away in a borrowed garage. But over the course of the next few years, through hard work, ingenuity, and some well-placed connections, he managed to take that tiny enterprise and turn it into a massive $2 billion empire with over 40,000 workers. And ask yourself, what is Apple today? It is a behemoth. It is a $3 trillion company with hundreds of thousands of workers located all over the globe. A most unlikely success story. Or think about our own nation, the United States. America is a great example of an unlikely success story. Thirteen fledgling colonies that take on the greatest empire in the world, and despite the longest of odds, manage to defeat that empire and gain their own independence, eventually producing an altogether new nation, one that is conceived in liberty, a nation and a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Or consider the Ford Motor Company. How many of you have seen the movie Ford versus Ferrari? It's the true story of how Ford engineers built a race car and a racing team that in 1966 did what everyone thought was simply impossible. At the world-famous French Le Mans, they toppled the undisputed giant of the racing world, Ferrari, going on to dominate that sport for years to come. Yes, all of these are examples of tremendous and yet unlikely success stories. And yet it has to be said that as impressive as they are, as unlikely as they are, none of them, not a single one comes even close to rivaling the tremendous and unlikely success story that is the Christian church. Will Durant, in his epic Pulitzer Prize-winning work, The Story of Civilization, put it well. He said, there is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned and oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all their trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has ever known. Caesar and Christ, he said, had met in the arena, and Christ had won. Well, Durant was correct. Today, nearly three billion people the world over claim to be the followers of this crucified and resurrected Messiah. And the impact that the Christian church has had upon the world is nothing short of staggering. Every aspect of life, education, 
health, politics, human rights, social justice, you name it. They have all, in one way or another, been touched by and transformed by the influence of Christianity. Now, yes, it's true, down through the centuries, some terrible things have been done in the name of the Christian church. And the critics are always eager to highlight this. But an honest appraisal reveals the fact that no movement in all of history has ever done more good for humanity, more good for men and women than has the Christian church. And besides, so much of the evil that has been done in the name of Christianity has been done by those who have twisted or distorted the faith, not upheld it. It is an undeniable fact Christianity is the most powerful, the most transformative, the most unlikely success story of all time. And it's a story, it's a phenomenon that began in earnest on this day with the events we are celebrating this morning. A Pentecost is often referred to as the birthday of the church, and rightly so. But it's worth asking, what exactly happened on this day that generated this tremendous movement? What was the catalyst for this world-transforming phenomenon? Well, today's passage from the book of Acts leaves us in no doubt whatsoever as to the answer to that question. The book of Acts tells us that the success of the early church was not due to the intellectual prowess of those first believers. It was not done not due to their high status or their position in society, of which they had none. And it was not even due to the eloquence of those first apostles, Peter and Andrew, James and John and the rest. No. The New Testament is clear. The success of the early church was due to one thing and one thing alone. The arrival of God the Holy Spirit. Today's text reads, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Every Sunday, immediately following the sermon, we stand and we profess our faith in the words of either the apostles or the Nicene Creed. And one of the things that we say is that we believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And we go on to say that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven. But then we go on to add this. And we believe in God the Holy Spirit, or God the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life. The creeds are clear. A belief in God the Holy Spirit is an essential component of the Christian faith. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a believer without believing in the Holy Spirit. And yet I cannot help but wonder how many people today, even many people who've been raised in the church, really understand who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is does. Well, that's what I want us to explore this morning. I want us to take a closer look at the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. 
I want us to take a closer look at the one who is the real secret behind the success of those early believers. So first, who is the Holy Spirit? I say who because it's vitally important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. This is the first thing that we have to get through our minds. You know, so often you hear people say things like, what you need is just a good dose of the Holy Spirit. You just need more of the Spirit, as if to imply that the Holy Spirit is some sort of force or power that can be harnessed or controlled like electricity. You may recall that this was the great error of Simon Magus in the book of Acts. Simon was a sorcerer or a magician from the land of Samaria, and he was a witness to the preaching of the early apostles, particularly Peter. And Simon couldn't help but notice that whenever Peter preached and then he laid hands on people, they received this gift of the Holy Spirit. Extraordinary things began to happen. Healings occurred. Miracles took place. And so Simon went to the apostles with a proposition, with an offer of money. He went to Peter and the others and he said, here, here's some cash. Give me this power that I too may lay my hands on people and they may receive this Holy Spirit. But we're told that Peter's response to this proposition was both swift and severe. He said, Simon, may your silver perish with you. For you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. What was Simon's problem? Simon's problem was really very simple. Simon assumed that the Holy Spirit was a power rather than a person. He assumed that the Holy Spirit was something that he could buy, something that he can control, something he could wield for his own purposes. And what he didn't understand was that actually the Holy Spirit is a divine person who wanted to control and wield Simon. Now to be fair, I don't think that Simon Magus is alone in his confusion. In fact, I think there are many people, as I said, even many people raised in the church who are confused as to who the Holy Spirit is. God the Father, we seem to understand at least in part. And God the Son, we seem to understand at least in part. But God the Holy Spirit, now God the Holy Spirit remains a great mystery to many people. How many of you have found that to be true in your own lives? Well, I think part of the reason for this is that name, Holy Spirit, or worse yet, the more archaic term, Holy Ghost. We seem to understand the idea of God the Father and God the Son, as I said, at least in part, because after all, those are relational terms. We have earthly fathers and we have earthly sons, and so we have some point of reference. But God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Ghost, what exactly does that mean? Those terms are nebulous to us. And when you add to this the fact that the Holy Spirit does not have any kind of physical or corporal presence, no bodily presence, the situation only becomes more complex. You can't see, you, you can't touch the Holy Spirit. And for people living in a materialist age who will not believe in anything they can't see or touch, the situation becomes very difficult 
indeed. But I want you to understand something this morning. The New Testament is unequivocal on this point. The Holy Spirit is indeed a person. In fact, he is the third person of the triune Godhead, the third person of the Trinity. And the language of the New Testament bears this out. Think for a moment of how the New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit. It speaks of walking in step with the Spirit. It speaks of grieving the Holy Spirit. It speaks of sinning against the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf. Well, let's face it, those are things that you can only do with a person. You can only walk in step with a person. You can only grieve a person. You can only sin against a person. You can't grieve or sin against a power or a force like gravity or electricity. And here's something else to keep in mind. A body is not all that constitutes personhood, regardless of what our materialist culture thinks. This became very clear to me some years ago when I was making a pastoral visit to a couple. The wife was in the final stages of Alzheimer's. And I was sitting in the room with the husband. We'd had a prayer. And he suddenly spoke up. He said, you know, Father Miller, I lost her a long time ago. I said, what do you mean? He said, she hasn't known me, recognized me, or even known my name for over five years years he said oh that's true that that's her body that, that looks like her he said but the spark the vitality the humor the personality everything that was her he said has been taken away by this wretched disease and I knew exactly what he meant he meant that even though the body was there everything that went into making her her seemed to have disappeared well, let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit does not have a body, but the Holy Spirit has everything else that goes into personhood. He has knowledge. He has feelings. He has will. And let's not forget, God the Father doesn't have a body either. In fact, it's only the second person of the Trinity who has taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's true, the Holy Spirit does not have a body, but he is a person. He's a person with whom you and I can have a relationship. He is a person who wants to have a relationship with you and me. He is a person who grieves, who feels, who intercedes on our behalf with moans and groans too deep for us to utter. So this is the first thing that we have to understand. We need to understand who the Holy Spirit is, that he is, in fact, a person, the third person of the triune Godhead. But that raises another question. What exactly does this person do? What exactly does the Holy Spirit do? You know, it's customary when you introduce someone to say something about them. We frequently say, for example, John, I'd like you to meet Mary. Mary is a veterinarian from Columbia. In the introduction, we say something about 
Mary as well as who Mary is. Well, the same thing is important when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Yes, we need to understand who he is, but we also need to understand what he does, what his role is as the third person of the Trinity. And here again, today's passage from the book of Acts is extremely helpful. You will notice that when the Holy Spirit showed up on the day of Pentecost, his presence was made manifest to the apostles by two symbols, wind and flame. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Wind and fire are two symbols that are rich in biblical history and importance. Think for a moment about wind. It's interesting to note that in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for wind, spirit, or breath is the same word. In Hebrew, it's ruach, and in Greek, it is the word panuma. But it's the same thing, breath, wind, or spirit. Well, every time you encounter those things, breath, wind, or spirit, in the Old or the New Testament, it's always a sign of new life. It's always a sign of new beginning. It's always a sign of regeneration. For example, in the book of Genesis, we're told that God created Adam from the dust of the earth, but that Adam did not become a living being until God did what? Breathed into him the breath of life. Well, it's that word ruach. It can be translated breath, wind, or spirit. You go a little further in the Old Testament and you have that extraordinary vision of the prophet Ezekiel. You know that vision of the dry bones? The Lord leads the prophet out into this valley of dry bones where there had been this great battle a long time before and we're told that the bones were still there and they were parched, bleached by the sun. They were very dry. And the Lord asks the question of the prophet, can these bones live? The bones represent Israel. And the prophet answers, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know the answer to that question. And the Lord tells Ezekiel the prophet to preach to the dry bones. I said, that's always good practice for the 815 service. <laughs> Not to this service, of course. But he's to preach to the dry bones. And as he begins to preach to the dry bones, we're told that there was this great rattling sound as bones came together, bone to bone, and they were covered with flesh and muscle and sinew. And the prophet said they stood on their feet, a mighty host. But Ezekiel noticed there was something amiss. They were not alive. They were not alive until the Lord told the prophet to preach to them about the Spirit of God. And as he began to speak about the life-giving Spirit of God, we're told that a great wind from the four points of the compass came and filled those slain, and they became a living host. Well, now go into the New Testament, to John chapter 3, and you have the account of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. 
And Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless a man or a woman is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused by that. He said, how can that be? How can a man be born when he is old? How can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born? And this is how Jesus replies. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, every single time you encounter the wind, the breath, the Spirit, it's always new life. Well, the presence of the wind here on Pentecost is a reminder to us that that is what the Holy Spirit comes to do. That's why we say he is the Lord and the giver of life. The Apostle Paul says you and I are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Now, it's true, a Savior has come down to us, the person of Jesus, to pay the price for our sins, but we cannot even believe in him because we are already dead. And what has to happen is that God, the Holy Spirit, has to come and do for us what he did for that valley of dry bones, breathe into us the life of God that we may live. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes to bring new life, regeneration, the new birth. But there is that other symbol, isn't there? Was it just wind? We're told that the Holy Spirit also appeared as fire, and we need to understand that as well. Fire, like wind, is rich in biblical significance. You'll recall that in the Old Testament, when God summoned Moses to lead the Hebrew children out of their captivity in Egypt, he called to Moses from within a what? A burning bush, a bush that was on fire but not consumed. When God led the people through their wanderings in the wilderness, he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what by night? Fire. When the Lord gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, we're told that the summit of Mount Sinai glowed with fire and lightning, representing God's presence and majesty. The author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament describes God as a consuming fire. Fire represents God's presence. Now you ask yourself, what does fire do? Fire does primarily two things. First of all, fire brings illumination. It brings light. Now, we don't often think about that because we live in an age of electricity. When we think of light, we think of going into a darkened room and flipping a switch. But in the first century, there was no incandescent light bulb. Light came from two sources. It came either from the sun or it came from fire. Well, fire on the day of Pentecost reminds us that this is something else that the Holy Spirit does. He not only brings new light, he brings illumination. He opens our minds to understand the things of God. You know, the apostles didn't understand much of the Old Testament. 
They didn't understand the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus until the Holy Spirit came and enlightened their minds, illuminated their memories so that they recalled what Jesus had taught them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes to open our minds to see life and the world and what matters in an altogether new way. But fire does something else. It not only brings illumination, it brings warmth. If you were a Bedouin in the first century, camped out in the desert, when the temperatures began to plummet, first thing you would do was build a fire to ward off the damp, and you would draw near to it to be warmed. The Holy Spirit comes to do that as well. He comes to open our minds, but he also comes to warm our hearts, to set them ablaze with a holy ardor and zeal and love for Jesus Christ. Isn't that how Wesley described his own conversion? He said, my heart was strangely warmed. So my friends, this is who the Holy Spirit is. He is the third person of the Trinity. This is what he does. He comes to give new life like the wind. He comes to open our minds to understanding and illuminate things like the fire. And he comes to warm our hearts with a love for Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit does that in the life of a man or a woman, or when he does that in the life of a congregation, let me tell you something, amazing things begin to happen. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came and did these things in the lives of the apostles, and look at what happened. Verses 5 and following. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now you know, when most people think about Pentecost, this is what they think about. They think about the Holy Spirit coming and all of a sudden people were able to speak in these foreign languages. That was the great miracle. But I want to suggest to you this morning, that is not the thrust of this passage. The real miracle is not that they spoke in known languages, which they did. The real miracle is that they spoke about the marvelous deeds of God. Verse 7 says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians? Here it is. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Folks, that's the sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in a person's life. That they have been reborn, that their minds have been illuminated, that their hearts are set ablaze. They have a yearning, a desire to go out and tell the world about the mighty deeds of God, about what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what happened 
on that day of Pentecost. And those people went out and they began to share the good news. And soul by soul, person by person, they brought the nations to their knees. It's the Holy Spirit who is the secret to their success. And brothers and sisters, he still is. He is the secret to our success as the church. I submit to you if there is one thing that we need more than anything else, we need God the Holy Spirit to come down upon us and fill us, to raise us to new life again, to open our minds, to fire our hearts with a love for Jesus Christ and to send us out into the world to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. When that happens, the nations, the strongholds, they yield to the power of God for the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Hallelujah. May God the Holy Spirit come and do for us what he did for those early believers. And may our success rest in him and him alone. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come as the wind and cleanse. Come as the fire and burn. Convert and consecrate our hearts for your great glory and for the benefit and salvation of the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.